0: Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I am here with Florence Williams. She is a podcaster. Uh, She leads wilderness and nature-based retreats in the US. She's an author, the author of The Nature Fix, which I have read and absolutely loved. Uh, She's also the author of Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey, which was the winner of the 2023 Pen. Have I missed something there? Pen Award for Writing?
1: Pen Award in
0: Science Writing. Pen Award in Science Writing. Uh, and a brilliant writer, I must say. As I said to you, Florence, before I came on, you made me laugh at least four times in the book. And the book has changed my behavior in at least two ways, uh, which, is, uh, which is high praise for, for any book. So I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, I can't wait to get into uh, all of your your journeys and explorations in what it means to be in nature and how it helps us. So very warm welcome, Florence, to Florence to the show. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, so for people who haven't heard about you, I would love uh, for our audience to hear a little bit of your backstory uh, before you came to be writing books about uh, being in the wilderness and and having your heart broken. Uh, it <laughs> would uh, be yeah awesome to to get some of the from the early Florence to where you are today?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I've been a science and environmental journalist um, for a long time, <laughs> a couple of decades, um, mostly doing kind of long-form articles for magazines like Outside Magazine, where I'm a contributing editor, National Geographic, um, publications like High Country News, which is an environmental magazine here in the U.S., um, Smithsonian, you know, Scientific American, places like that. Um, and I started writing books about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I've written, uh, actually three books now. And they've all been, um, more or less about what I'm interested in, which is sort of the hidden connections between human health and the environment.
0: Right. And did you grow up as a kid with a nature lust? Uh, did it you start know, it's there?
1: Funny. I actually grew up in New York city in Manhattan, Um, but close to Central Park, which is, you know, one of the great parks of the world designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, And, um, you know, I was, I was probably in the park like almost every day, uh, as a teenager riding my bike, playing soccer, um, you know, jogging. (laughs) And, um, my dad was a big wilderness guy. And so every summer, um, we we were sort of the original van life people. We would load into this 1979 Dodge van with two canoes on the top and a couple tents inside and a mini fridge um, and drive out west. And so we would go canoeing on these wilderness river trips um, in places like Montana and Wyoming and Colorado. So yeah, it definitely got in my blood. And then I moved out west after, after college.
0: Right. And, and did your so you said your, your scientific interest was in the connection between the environment and aspects of yeah. human well being So is that what, so where did your, is that what you studied? You first studied when you got to college?
1: No, not really. I mean, in college, I, uh, I was an English major, so a lot of literature, uh, but I was a minor in environmental studies. Um, but in those days it was mostly policy and economics, uh, things like that. Not a lot of Science, um, it wasn't until I started writing more about the environment um, that I actually got a little bit bored just writing the sort of classic environmental stories of like what's wrong with the logging companies and what's wrong with the mining companies and what's happening to air pollution. Uh, I was interested in what did this actually mean for our cells? What did it mean for our um, you know babies, uh, what did it mean for our psychology? Uh, and so that's when I started getting a lot more interested in the science because I started being becoming interested in learning about human hormone systems, for example, how pollution affects that, how pollution affects our reproductive systems. Um, and then uh, on the good side, you know, how being in nature can help
0: our psychology. Right. And, and what were some of the first discoveries you made then? that really kind of got you hooked to go deeper into this connection with with well-being and nature?
1: Well, um, about 10 or 12 years ago, my family moved from the heart of Colorado, uh, from the front range of the Rockies, to Washington, D.C. And even though I had grown up on the East Coast, you know, I had spent 20 years in the mountains. And so I felt this huge psychological shift in my own mind, for the worse. I mean, I got really stressed out <laughs> making this move, you know, to a big city. And there was a lot of noise pollution. Um, there was a lot of air pollution. Uh, you know, There were these traffic circles that you're all familiar with in the UK. Um,
0: roundabouts, we call them. Yeah. We
1: call them roundabouts, exactly. Um, you know, and I, I, I got more anxious and I wasn't sleeping well, I, I got depressed. And I started to really think about the ways that our, um, our internal landscape, you know, gets reflected by our external landscape and how did that environmental psychology affect us? So around that time, I was also assigned an article for Outside Magazine uh, about the power of being outside and sort of what the science has to say about it. You know, we had heard of this term, nature deficit disorder which was coined by a journalist Richard Louv who wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods. But I was interested to know like if there was scientific evidence to this, you know, this idea that when we spend our lives indoors, which we increasingly do, um, you know, what the impact is on our physical health and on our emotional health. So that's what I set out to investigate for outside and it kind of blew my mind because there was science about it and a lot of emerging science just starting up um, as scientific tools were sort of evolving. So, we could now take, for example, portable EEG caps that measure brain waves out into the field, where previously a lot of these nature experiments had actually had to be conducted in a lab by mm. showing people photographs. Now, we could actually wear these EEG caps in different environments, see what was going on in our brain waves. Um, Other neuroscientists were doing imaging studies, uh, looking at activation in certain parts of the brain. All of this was just really starting to happen about seven years ago, uh, you know, when I started writing the book. And so, um, you know, after that article, I ended up getting an assignment from National Geographic. It was a cover story called The Power of the Parks, um, very similar. And in those days, National Geographic was really interested in what the rest of the world was doing and had a big travel budget for reporters. So they sent me to, you know, all these different countries um, and that's when I realized, you know, there's really a book there.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and g- going back to that first article for the for outside what 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 was it that you first discovered when you were given that opportunity to look at the the science?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I had to really figure out where there was ongoing science that I could witness. Because as a reporter, you know, I want to see it actually happening in real time. Um and eventually, I found some ongoing studies in Japan, and they were um, really interesting studies measuring people's physiologies. So, um, basically, taking groups of people out into what they call forest therapy trails in Japan.
0: They have a term um, for it, don't they? Well, I, Shin. Yes. Well, forest Shin, Shin, bathing. Shinrin y- yoko. Is that right? Can exactly.
1: You? That's kind of what they were doing. Was this forest bathing shinrin yoku, but on these designated <laughs> forest therapy trails? which are not something, you know, that we call, you know, we don't, we don't use that terminology in the U S. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting that Japan has really embraced this as kind of a population wide wellness intervention. Right. But, but a number of studies coming out of Japan, um, showing that people's cortisol stress hormone levels drop when they're outside in nature, that they're, nervous system really enters, you know, a, a calmer, uh, more balanced state. So, um, respiration slows, um, heart rate variability shifts in a way to indicate a more restorative state, um, more of a rest and digest part of the nervous system as opposed to fight or flight state that many of us are kind of in a lot during modern life, um, And also people were reporting in these studies that they felt a more positive mood after being outside. They were having fewer thoughts of anger and frustration. You know, when I first heard about this, I was a little bit skeptical because I thought, well, they're exercising, right? These people are walking around in the woods. Um, And by the way, a lot of these changes were being found after just 15 or 20 minutes of being outside. Hmm. And they're away from work, they're away from school. but the researchers were trying to control for that by sending groups to also walk around a city intersection or a downtown city area. So they were walking the same distance. They were away from work or school for the same amount of time, but they were really only seeing these positive restorative changes after being in the forest. So right. that was that was really what I ended up writing about was this kind of forest bathing. Um, and that article came out a while ago. It was like 2013, I think. And, uh, you know, since that time, of course, forest bathing has become very, the the article went viral. Um, I think they called it something like take two hours of pine forest and call me in the morning. Uh, Um, (laughs) and now there are, you know, thousands of guides, uh, who have been trained outside of Japan, uh, including me. I went and got training during the pandemic, which was fun. So I now lead forest bathing.
0: (laughs) Right. And what was your first, ex- did, you, did, did you go to Japan and experience Shinrin Yoku? I did. Just talk us and- through that then. Talk us through your first experience of forest bathing.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it was interesting. I mean, Japan has some really beautiful national parks, um, beautiful hardwood forests. Um, there are a lot of hinoki cypress trees there, which um, scientists are also studying. And I ended up reporting on some of that for the story. Um, where uh, immunologists, for example, like Dr. Ching Li in, in Japan, is um, actually measuring what's happening to our immune cells when we're in the presence of these tree compounds, these aerosols that smell wonderful. You know, I sort of describe it in the book as a combination of Christmas tree and vapo rub. You know what vaporub is? It's that
0: yeah, I know that. Yeah, I can remember it from a kid. Yeah, on your chest. If you
1: Yes, it's this yeah, really it lung clearing, right? Mm. Invigorating. Yeah. Um, but it turns out, and and when and what you know, that after being in the woods for a couple of days, um, our killer T immune cells increase about 33 percent And those are immune cells that are really important for fighting viruses. Uh, they're important for fighting cancer, um, and all kinds of of illnesses. Trees seem to emit these aerosols also as an immune defense, right? So they help protect mm-hmm. the trees from fungi and so on. So it's really interesting that they also seem to act on the human immune system. I, that blew my mind. Uh, who would have thought? And, and uh, you know, so, so one of the ways Dr., Dr. Lee sort of figured this out was he he actually basically locked people in hotel rooms for three days And in half the rooms, he misted this Hinoki cypress oil in a mister. And in half the rooms, he just misted water vapor. And then he analyzed people's immune cells. And again, it was like this big increase, significant increase in immune cells in the people who were exposed to the Hinoki cypress essential oil. Uh, And the, the immune cells stay elevated for up to 30 days although most elevated for seven days. So his advice to me, which I'll pass on, was if you can get into the woods once a month, you know, that's good for your immune system. And if you can get out once a week, that's even better for your immune system.
0: Right, and, and I talked about behavior change from you, but one of the things that i bought bought, you know, a mister for my room, and I put Cypress essential oil in it. The, yeah, The problem I have to, I've got around that, I, I think, too, that I, I think smell. I need to get a more expensive one because it's a bit loud, <laughs> and I now can't sleep because the mist is too loud.
1: Well, in Japan, that's so funny. They actually make products like hinoki toothpaste,
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs>
1: shampoo. Like it's you know they're really they're really going for it,
0: right? Um, but the, but the experience itself, because I can imagine people who are just hearing that term for the first time. And I know when I first heard the term, I was like, "What? You kind of get down in the leaves and like rub yourself with grass? <laughs> I mean, like, what actually is it?" Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you don't have to take your clothes off. Um,
1: really, it, it's almost like sunbathing, forest bathing. And, and the, the idea is that you're a somewhat passive um, kind of um, experiencer of this environment. So you can move through the woods, usually quite slowly in a traditional kind of forest bathing experience. You can sit next to a tree. Um, and, and the idea is to really open up all of your senses. So typically a guide will kind of just cue you through this, you know, close your eyes, take some deep breaths. Um, what are you hearing? You know, let's focus on the sounds of the woods or whatever nature environment you're in. It doesn't have to be a forest. Um, and then there are different, um, kind of invitations to also smell wonderful things. Um, you can go on a little wandering expedition on your own for 15 or 20 minutes and, and just notice the different textures uh, around you in this nature area. So by doing that, by opening up our senses, you are actually rejuvenating your mind because you're, what it does, and, and the neuroscience studies have kind of shown this, is that by, by becoming more sensory and more aware of our senses, we're actually kind of dimming down the activation in our thinking executive function brain. Mm. Um, not something we get to do very much in daily modern life, right? Where we're like so task oriented and we're stressed out and we're ruminating. Um, so we kind of open those senses up, uh, and it makes us feel wonderful. you know our our bodies are designed to be sensory. they're designed to read. Natural environments, right? I'm so interested in how, for example, our perceptual systems evolved to feel at home and to read a natural landscape. You know, we can look around a forest landscape and say, oh, there's clean water. Um, Here's an animal track. I'm going to follow it this way. Um, You know, I smell rain coming, right? That's how we evolved. And so the theory is that when we take our sort of modern and we go out into the woods, on some deep subconscious level, we just feel at home there because our perceptual systems know how to deal with this landscape, as opposed to the roundabouts where we actually have to shut down stimuli in order to focus on getting to the other side. So for example, if you're listening to the BBC and you're driving in a roundabout, and there's a kid crossing or a dog crossing, you know, or a truck coming, you're not, you're not actually hearing what's going on on the BBC at that moment. You have to filter it out. Um, our brains get really exhausted by doing this kind of constant filtration. You know, we don't want to hear what's going on in the office behind us. We don't want to smell this, the smells of, you know, Broadway. (laughs) Um, we shut down our senses in modern life, and to be right. able to wake them back up again just feels makes us feel alive, makes us feel better,
0: right. that makes sense. And I saw something in uh, you know some piece of research you cited that the sympathetic neural activity, I think it was re- reduced by six seven, seven percent re- reduction they'd found in you know this sympathetic activation.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and now there have been even more studies showing uh, better blood sugar regulation, you know, regular walks outside, Um, reduced feelings. I thought this was really interesting, especially after the pandemic, reduced feelings of loneliness uh, after feeling connected to nature. Um, So interesting. Right. Yeah.
0: And and, uh, what I also found interesting was the research you cited on um, fractals. Right talk to us about that. Like what is a fractal for people who aren't familiar? And then, you know, how that relates to what you're talking about.
1: Sure. Well, in the book, I sort of, I end up going through all those senses because I'm curious to know why we feel so much better when we're outside. And what I found is that different scientists have their own pet theories about it. So, you know, there's the smell guy uh, who I mentioned. Um, um, There are, you know, psychologists who are convinced it's about the color green does something to, to sort of make us feel safe because we can, you know, in our deep evolutionary past, feel like we can find resources we need in a green environment. Um, but there are these physicists too who say, I no, no, it's actually about the fractal patterns that we see in the natural world that change our brain patterns. Um, so a, a fractal pattern is a pattern that repeats at different scales. Um, So, for example, you know, cloud formations, coastlines, um, waves and ripples in a stream, um, trees, uh, forests, you know, especially if you picture, you know, a forest in the winter. um, You get these, you know, patterns on the leaves, you get them on the twigs, you get them on the branches, and then you get them in the forest as a whole. So, our brains, according to the neuroscience, our brains do engage in a really positive way. When we're seeing these fractals, um, and you know, if you remember those screensavers, right from from the '90s, you know that mm-hmm. would go like that. Um, they kind of do. They they're they're calming and they're kind of um, you know relaxing. So um, yeah. So that's when, oh, oh, and and I guess you know one of the guys who one of the physicists who kind of has has done some research with this also discovered that Jackson Pollock painted in fractal patterns
0: mm. and
1: um you know there was something about him in particular he was really attuned to these patterns that are found in nature and people who have tried to imitate jackson pollock's um have not been successful actually in 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 making fractal patterns on the canvas and so it's one of the ways they were using to find fakes which i think is really interesting
0: oh fascinating right yeah but that also struck, struck me as something that's having immediate practical ac- application. I mean, all of us could seek to make our workplaces more full of fractal patterns, you know in the in the art that we choose, our homes or our workplaces and, and, and just quick more, more, like right?
1: more biophilic in general, you know mm. if we bring more house plants in, if we work by a window where we can look out onto fractal patterns, see the sky, see some trees, um. You know there are there are many ways that we can make our indoor environments um, more conducive to feeling some of these restorative effects.
0: Right, right, um, yeah. And then so so you started with your research in J- Japan, and that was and actually before I read your book, I the only research I was familiar with was that which had been done in Japan. But it turns out we've been doing it in Europe. I mean, even on on my doorstep, it doorstep in Scotland. So, yeah. So tell us a bit more about your, your sort of adventures in Europe and what we're discovering. Over yeah. Here. So
1: um, I was really interested to spend some time in uh, Wales and um, in Scotland. I went to a forest preschool <laughs> that I visited there. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of data coming out of these forest preschools, you know, that the kids who go through these programs. Um, and by the way, in Scandinavia, it's about one in 10 kids. so It's pretty common, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they end up. Um, a little bit behind their peers on measures of reading and writing, you know, until about third grade, when they go to, you know, conventional classrooms and sort of catch up. But they're ahead of their peers and they stay ahead of their peers on measures of social and emotional regulation. Um, They're healthier in terms of their um, microbacteria on their skin, for example, they're less likely to get colds, they're less likely to have asthma. Um, They perform really well in groups and in teams. Um, They seem to have more self-esteem as leaders. Um, They are curious about the world around them and they're encouraged to learn through exploration. So this one forest school I visited in Scotland, um, someone found a dead frog, you know, in in the forest. And... So the curriculum that day was um creating a, a sort of lovely nature funeral for the frog and talking about cycles of life and death. And you know, as you can imagine, the kids are fully engaged <laughs> in this. Um they are jumping in puddles and they're climbing trees and um they're counting pebbles. And you know, even though it seems like sometimes a harsh environment because it's rainy and cold <laughs> often in Scotland and Scandinavia, um, you know, the kids are kind of learning to help build fires and they're popping popcorn in the fires and um, they're even helping saw rough parts of down trees to make them friendlier to play on. Um, so they're they're kind of learning to use real tools, and um, yeah, they seem like they're really having a great time. <laughs> I felt guilty as a mother, you know, that my kids
0: didn't go. I was the same because I was kind of getting familiar with some of this research as my kids are in a you know a box all day. So yeah, I had similar similar feelings. Yeah, um, but that yeah, which just but it does motivate me to get them out much more weekends.
1: But yeah. you know, for adults, too, there's just just a lot of emerging science. So in yeah. Finland, um, some research has found that people who spend a minimum of five hours a month outside in nature spaces, which you know equates to about thirty or forty minutes twice a week, those people can prevent mild depression, yeah, um they feel more optimistic. They have a better, a sense of uh, energy and invigoration uh, in their lives. And um, since then, uh, there's been another study in the UK showing that two hours, a mo- uh, let's what what is it? Two hours a week of time outside. So eight hours a month, You people in the UK seem to need a little more nature because <laughs> maybe you're more stressed out <laughs> than people in Finland. But that two hours a week is kind of the sweet spot for um psychological and physical health.
0: Right. And that's in nature.
1: Yes, but nature sort of broadly defined, right? So it can be coastlines, um, you know, green areas, um, gardens. Uh there are there are lots of ways to define nature. Uh
0: it doesn't have to be, you know, the Rocky Mountains, which is And d- would do parks count? Yeah. Yeah. And and well, I found some interesting study, some research you cited in Glasgow, right? But but the state of the park matters, right? How wasn't said so there's some research they looked at where if the park wasn't well kept?
1: Yes, because um, some of these parks in Glasgow were had been sort of taken over by hoodlums. You know, there was drug dealing and, um, um, you know, lighting the wheelie bins on fire and stuff like that. And so just a lot of people didn't go to the. The parks, they didn't feel safe or, friend, you know, they didn't feel like friendly spaces. Um, and women especially will, will not go into parks uh, by themselves unless they feel safe. And so um, one of the experiments in Scotland has been to improve the quality uh, and safety of some of these woodlots. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, and and they're measuring how people feel now in those spaces. So I think that's really interesting science. and um it it looks like the the beneficial effects are especially salient for people at the lower ends of the socioeconomic status. So wealthy people in general have a lot of other resources. Um, you know they can afford great health care. they can afford to belong to the golf club. They can afford living in neighborhoods that have wonderful you know courtyards and things like that. Um, but you see these huge benefits for uh, people who live in public housing, where the public housing is closer to green space. Um, it's the equivalent of making more money if you live on a block with a lot of trees uh, or near a park. So right. they call yeah. it like an equigenic effect. It helps equalize the benefits for people.
0: Right. Right, and I, and I saw something that just, just living near a park, even if you don't use it, has some benefit, right?
1: Yes, that's
0: right. Which, is, which I thought was extraordinary. i mean, fascinated to delve into, into why yes, that is. Yeah,
1: who knows what that's about? It could be partly about uh, buffering noise pollution, buffering air yeah. pollution, um, views out the window, which we also have data on for helping people feel yeah. stress reduction.
0: Yeah. The other thing I took away from the book, which made subtle sense to me, was this, this forecasting error we make when it comes to spending time in nature. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yes, there was a study uh, at the University of Toronto uh, in Canada, um, asking students to predict how happy they would feel after walking across campus through trees and grass, or walking across campus through the underground tunnels. And um and then they kind of measured you know their state of minds before and after and uh you know it turns out that people felt much better after walking outside <laughs> it, it amongst the trees but they didn't predict that right and so sometimes i think we we sort of discount you know the really beneficial effects that nature can give us uh and we tend to overcount um you know, watching TV or um, eating ice cream. Uh, I mean, those things are nice too, but, but it turns out nature has a huge impact on us. Yeah. yeah, and we're just not very good. I think, well, we're not very good at predicting how we'll feel, but we're also not very good at asking ourselves and tuning in, how do I feel after that walk? Mm. And so I really encourage people to do that. You know, if you are spending time outside, check in with yourself and see if you felt better, you know, than when you started, um, notice which features of nature make you feel the best. So for some people, it may be bodies of water, you know, for other people, um, it may be, um, you know, a a clear golf, golf lawn, um, or it may be a forest, or it may be spending time with flowers, um, you know, in a greenhouse. So just cue in a little bit notice stop and notice which are the parts of nature that make me happiest
0: yeah yeah that that yeah that that makes sense to me and and also what i found armed with that knowledge is if i if if the voice in my head oh it's rainy or it's windy it's it's, it's like yeah but you you're gonna get benefit of it it's, it's more like treating it like a vitamin pill or some medicine or something like turn off the part of you that says oh yeah but i might not like it and just really remind myself no no this is is very good for me
1: well that's a good point because one of the studies took place in michigan in the winter um when it was blustery and cold and people really didn't want to go outside um but after they went it turns out (laughs) their short-term memory was better um and their um let's see what else was better their like attention to tasks uh, they perform better on certain tests. So, you know, there are these benefits, even when we don't feel like it's so beneficial.
0: Yeah. And I thought that's a really, really important, important finding. It's almost like treat it like a green juice. You might not like it while it lasts. But... Exactly.
1: It's like broccoli. <laughs>
0: <laughs> broccoli. Yeah, there we go. Right.
1: But I think we've also all had that experience of like not wanting to go outside when it's raining or something. And yeah. then after 10 or 15 minutes, like, you know, we don't want to come home. I mean, it's great. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I'll do that with my kids. I'll be like, I don't care. You're going outside. Get your wellies on. Uh, it's it's learning to do that for myself.
1: Yeah, we call that motivational inertia, right? It's like, it. we just don't want to make the transition. But right. once we do, we're like, oh, yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And of course, we're also, I mean, that was the other interesting part of your, your your research is that we've, of course, become that motivational inertia is exacerbated, presumably by just how entertaining our devices now are, right? Totally. Uh, I, I saw something, starting. I was sharing this in the office before we came on from the book, but um, Paul, actually, husband of Ruth, and actually, who's been on the show, um, was citing some research, 36% of people check their phones while having sex. Yeah. That's-
1: I also, I also heard that we check our email 74 times a day. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah it's just, it's, and, yeah. And, and I guess, and, and being in nature, and that's another important part, right? We, we, it's no good, I remember Ruth saying this when she was on the show, it's no good being in nature with your tech, right? It To get the effects, you've got to, as much as possible, leave the tech at home, right?
1: I, so I think that's a little bit debatable. Um, it depends how you're using the phone. Um, I think we've also found that, you know, people like taking photos, uh, of course on their phones. Uh, well, we know for Instagram, but, but also sometimes to help identify, you know, a particular plant or bug or something like that. Um, it can in some ways maybe help cue us into beauty if we know we're taking a picture of something. Um, but if you're, you know, we, we also have studies showing that if you're on the phone or if you're texting, you are not paying attention to what's around you. Mm. So uh, one study showed that people who were on the phone while walking across an arboretum um, noticed as little in the arboretum as people who didn't take the walk at all. So when they were asked to recall what they saw, they it was like they hadn't even taken the walk.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. So take your phone but not at the expense of paying attention to what's around you.
1: Put it in your back pocket and only pull it out.
0: Occasionally. If you want to, if you want to <laughs> discover if that mushroom's edible. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, even there, be very careful.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm getting my kids. That's one of the things I've found, actually. The great way to engage my kids is getting them mushroom hunting. And is this, Can we eat this one, Daddy? Can we eat it?
1: I love mushroom hunting. I'm, I'm with you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fantastic. Um well, the other thing, which I have to say, I've not read your book on heartbreak, but as you were saying before we came on, it it, it has some links. So I wonder if uh, yeah. we we could explore a little bit, you know, what you, you know, the story of, of that book and, you know, yeah. how you come to write a book about heartbreak and, and perhaps some of the links to to nature and how it can help.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for asking me about that. Um, the book just came out last year and it's really about um, my experience of a, really you know, difficult divorce after a 25 year marriage. Um, and so I became much more interested in grief and trauma and how to recover from that. I, I do talk about that a little bit in the nature fix book. I have a chapter, for example, on veterans, uh, you know, who have post-traumatic stress. Um, but, but for the heartbreak book, I I just dove much deeper into that. And um, you know, talked quite a bit about what grief does to our bodies physically um i got sick uh you know after the divorce and my immune system really changed and i was very curious to know why what was going on why did i feel so anxious and sort of hyper vigilant uh and it turns out that you know when we feel rejected uh or sort of ostracized um or you know we've lost love or lost an attachment bond it makes us feel very vulnerable because we associate attachments from our deep evolutionary past right, with safety. And so our bodies in some ways respond as if we've been kind of left alone on the savanna and we become very kind of conscious of danger. Um, and so that's that's not great for our immune systems. You know, when it persists, uh, increases inflammation, I actually checked my um uh, immune cell markers, checked my genetic markers, uh, transcription factors in my immune system to see how they were changing over time after the divorce and to see if there was anything I could do to make myself and my cells, um, you know, return to normal. Uh, and so one of the things I did really the heart of that book. The heartbreak book is a 30 day trip into the wilderness. Um, wow. In the Nature Fix, I wrote about the three day effect, you know, which is that magical things start to happen to us, kind of emotionally, uh, after three days uh, outside. But but I felt like, okay, I need a lot more than three days to get over
0: this. I need thirty five years. years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. takes as long to get over it as you. Yeah.
1: So yeah, yeah. I spent thirty days in the wilderness, and and um, tw- twelve of those days I did totally alone, like a solo trip. Um to see if i could go really deep into kind of a, a sense of healing um, and you know again measured my cells kind of before and after uh, that trip it, it turns out actually that the solo trip did not make me feel safer it did not change my immune cells although it was an interesting exercise in terms of learning how to meditate and right. sort of quiet my mind and doing a lot of deep reflection but being alone in the wilderness uh, you know, is is you're, you're actually literally doing what your brain thinks you're doing when you've been divorced, which is that you feel like you're alone in the wilderness. So it's actually being with other people in the wilderness is a better strategy uh, if you feel lonely and rejected, it turns out. So that was good to learn.
0: Right, right. That sounds like a very stoic way of putting it. <laughs> <Did> you- <laughs> Did did it get pretty dark then when you were like on this trip or?
1: Yeah, it kind of did. Um, I mean, it was beautiful and I felt, I felt empowered by it. You know, I came out of it feeling like I can take care of myself. I can be kind of a a badass. I can like Mm. paddle canoe through the wilderness and I can row my own boat. You know, that's an important Mm. metaphor. Um, but i also cycled into some dark places you know um mentally because there i didn't have any friends you know mm. there to kind of tell me florence don't be ridiculous like you're great you know and mm. your ex-husband's a loser and you know there there was none of that kind of um mediating force that our friends are so good at um, you know there's a reason we like living in society and it's it's because it doesn't let us cycle into these dark ruminating places that we tend to go to alone
0: yeah and that that resonates with my own experience of my own grief work is in the end i've had to do it by myself but it's always been with the help of a a therapist or yeah some there's there's a a sort of a i've always done my most powerful healing work with a witness yes companion
1: And it makes us feel less alone just to know Mm. that these are shared experiences. Sometimes when you're going through a traumatic event, you don't know other people going through it at the same time. Um, For me, like all my close friends were still married. Um, But everyone goes through it sooner or later. Right. Right. Everyone yeah. goes through heartbreak sooner or later. It's an experience everyone has eventually um, you know, some kind of heartbreak or another.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or difficult times. And so by being vulnerable and talking about my own, you know, difficulty through this, I was able to really connect, you know, in a very meaningful way, um, with people who could help me and had been through it also.
0: Right. And so if the Time in the wilderness alone didn't work. What did work?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, I'd say time in nature with friends was really great. Right. Uh, so I I did that a ton. Um, I talk a lot in the book about the power of awe, how we can uh, develop a keener ability to see beauty around us, and we know that people who can do that, people who can cultivate awe, cultivate beauty. Are actually more resilient people, uh, and that was a huge lesson from the book, so it became my project to become more attuned to the awe and beauty around me as a way to heal uh, and I, I talk a lot about that science in the book and a lot about how I did it but but mostly it was you know through learning how to become a little more mindful, um, you know really making an effort to kind of notice things around me um to put myself in the way of beauty as well, right? Um, and then um, you know to really savor, savor that, and and feel when when we feel awe, you know, we feel like we're connected to a larger world. We feel like our own problems are less significant. Uh, at one point, I was walking through the woods, and I was kind of you know thinking something you know, kind of disturbing and distracting. And all of a sudden, this great horned owl like flew right in front of me on the path. And I was like, you know, that kind of like awe face that people get. It's like, you know, your eyebrows go up. And, you know, it immediately takes you out of whatever it is you're thinking of. Whatever that was becomes completely unimportant. You're just blown away by this force in front of you. And, um, um you know, different psychologists talk about this as being kind of an unselfing where our ego becomes a little bit less important in those moments, Very, very significant uh, for our mental health to feel like, oh, yeah, there's a world outside of my head, and it's an incredible world, and
0: I want to see it right. yeah, that, and it and and. I'm guessing there's a relationship with that to the extent of, we need to feel safe enough that we're open to sort of surrender to the, to this or.
1: Yes. uh, Safety is a very important part of healing. Um, But I think being in nature and feeling connected to it can also help us feel safer, right? Because it helps calm our nervous systems down in that way. Um, but, you know, it my project to kind of find awe took me in some interesting directions. So, for example, I did some psychedelic therapy because there has been some research suggesting that the pathway for why psychedelics can be so helpful for some people after trauma is because it puts them in an awe state, okay. So uh, you know, they're seeing, you know, the connections of the universe, right? and and I had a very powerful and beautiful experience taking psilocybin, you know, which is uh, magic mushrooms, basically, um, where, uh, you know, I saw myself as a tree. <laughs> and um, I saw my ex as a, a constricting vine around right. my trunk, and I had this very powerful realization that I needed to unwind him really from my heart in order to grow into this beautiful tree that I wanted to become <laughs> and then you know i also felt like i was like one particle of light amongst millions of other particles of light in the universe and we're all made of molecules you know it was like it was profound and um very helpful it ended up being one of the most helpful things i did because it made me feel less afraid of the future um and it helped me, I think, separate, you know, from this.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what a beautiful tree you are.
1: Thank you. <laughs> and still growing, right?
0: It's just growing. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. And did you find after that experience then that your facility then to be in awe was, was increased then? You could kind of get into that groove more easily.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I try, I I try, I tried and still try to sort of recapture some sense of that through meditation. So I have deepened my own meditation practice um, since, you know, the heartbreak, but also especially since that experience, because it is known to be one of the ways you can kind of, um, you know, attenuate the effects um, or elongate the effects um, of feeling connected to, Mm. to the world around you. I think that's one of the you know, deepest benefits of meditation, right, is this sense of unity and belonging um, that we can find.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and just as you described that, I think, yeah, I, I, I resonate a lot with that because I, I meditate, you know, twice a day. And, yeah, I feel that all. But I have to say that the most, there's a, I went on a canoeing trip with my kids recently, and, and we caught we, at dawn we caught this bat, barn owl hunting. And me and my son were both like, yeah. So there is, I'm not sure I've ever quite reached that same level of wow uh, in meditation, right? There's there's certainly something special about, yeah, just being in in those sort of peak nature moments.
1: But I think there are lots of ways to find awe, you know? I mean, Mm. obviously I'm a fan of nature, but, you know, whatever it is that makes you feel Mm. wowed, and it may be a symphony or it may be looking at, uh, art, you know, um, it may be watching your children, you know, do something amazing. Um, it may be through religion. Um, but I think going in pursuit of awe and even trying to do it a little bit every day has been shown to really improve your mood. Um, again, your sense of loneliness, Um, your, um, it reduces symptoms of pain. It's finding sort of daily awe um, reduces symptoms of anxiety and depression. So, you know, you can make it a little practice to just every day say, I'm going to find something beautiful today and I'm just going to sit with it for a few breaths. Like that's it. Mm. It's just like a one minute practice, but, uh, it's been shown in studies to really have significant effects.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pretty. And is that something you now do? Is that a practice you have? Uh, as yeah, well? Yeah. I actually
1: joined a study, um, called the Northfield AWE study, uh, where I did that practice twice a day and then kind of on an app and my phone, I would sort of like report my mood and my symptoms and stuff like that. Um, and that study has been analyzed now. And, and I think there's something like a, you know, 20 or 30% improvement in people's symptoms on average, uh, after six weeks of this. But but the interesting thing is that after doing that for six weeks, I I felt like I was able to just now naturally notice beauty more more readily around me. So after like really trying to look for it, now I'm just better at seeing it when it's there.
0: Right, that would make sense after six weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So totally, but like one or two minutes a day, like you know.
0: Yeah, and I immediately go to well, imagine if we were doing that in our workplaces or in schools or right, what a difference that might make.
1: Exactly. Exactly. We just mm. don't experience awe as a species as much as we used to. You know, we used to look right. at the Milky Way every night. We used yeah. to come face to face with wild animals. We used to see the sunset. We used to see the moon. Um, we don't experience awe as much. And we are a species that evolved to experience this and mm. it has helped us cohere, you know, as groups. It has helped us feel optimistic. You know, um, so the lack of it is something I think about a lot actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And and it would make sense that we would have to kind of retrain ourselves to find it and seek it and experience it enough that we feel compelled to seek more of it. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's linked to resilience, you know? So if we care about preventing mental health problems or helping manage them, um, this is, I think, a really important idea that doesn't get a lot of airplay. And it should.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, having done this, you know, having done hundreds of podcasts and we've, you know, many, many of which have been devoted to healing and, and wellness and so on. Yeah, this is this specific topic of awareness has not come up. It's interesting. It's, it's, it is interesting to me. I'm and- curious,
1: Richard, how, how you have changed some of your practices since reading the book.
0: Yeah, so that's right. So definitely trying the, the Cypress oil.
1: Yeah.
0: Which I love and I can, I have some sense of an effect. As I say, I've just got to, um... <laughs> do, like, do I have this Mr. On with earplugs in so I can actually get to sleep? Or do I like find a quieter one? But at the moment I'm like, you know, there's this trade-off right now between this, having the thing going and being able to get sleep, um, which I'm sure I'll figure out.
1: Well, I don't think I don't think the Hinoki Cypress oil is supposed to calm you down. Actually, I don't think that's a good one for sleep. I think it's supposed to make you feel a little invigorated. Actually,
0: so read, maybe when got you're the wrong sitting
1: oil. at the desk and you're trying to wake up, that's a good time to
0: do it. Oh damn! I got the wrong oil. There you go. I misread go. The, the. I thought this. anyway. Um, so there's there's that. The yeah. The other thing is 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 this forecasting error point right? Like. Really training myself to um counter that thought of oh it's rainy it's wet or oh i'm tired or oh, et etc et etc et etc like treating it like it's important I go to the gym it's important i get my you know I get my vitamins it's so re- really relating to it in that way um is is a new behavior and like so so one of the, that's manifested in is is like deliberately walking to get my coffee which is a in the in the town that I'm working in now, it's at the other end of the park. So I I walk through the park to get to coffee to get the yeah. coffee, right? Because you know, based on the evidence in your book, I know that even ten or fifteen minutes, which that requires walking through a park, is going to give me some benefit.
1: And have you noticed that you feel differently walking through the park than walking on the
0: busy street? Well, that's that's a good that that is something I'm learning from this podcast. Actually, is something I'm not doing. And I yeah. can see there might be benefit in is pausing and yeah. asking myself, "Oh, okay, how did that feel walking through the park versus, uh, yeah, walking along the street?" Like, okay, or, well, you'll have to
1: self-experiment. Know,
0: yeah, or, and and what uh, or what do I like about the park? Is it the fact? Am I engaged with the pigeons? Is it the trees? Is it the grass? Is it the flowers? Like, though that that kind of reflection, I'm not doing. I'm just like, forcing no, myself to actually walk through the park. I-
1: can also talk about ways to maximize the benefits of that walk through the park because like i said if you're you know if you're listening to uh your headphones and you're thinking about your to-do list while you're walking through the park um you're sort of crushing yourself a little bit there Mm. so if you if you need the restoration and you want the restoration the key the secret to sort of the shortcut of benefits is to is to really make an effort to cue into your senses mm-hmm. so the next time you walk through the park you know ask yourself a couple things like what birds am i hearing yeah like and how many how many birds am i hearing um i wonder if i can find some fractal patterns you know in these trees right. around me um you know um does it make sense to stop for a moment and pick pick some leaves Or some pine needles around you and smell them as you're walking like that is a shortcut right there to a change in mood so um and then like maybe even taking a moment to sort of close your eyes for a second and just feel what the breeze is doing where where is that breeze hitting your body um take a couple of deep breaths while you're there that is just a way to like really amplify those benefits in a very limited amount of time
0: yeah no, I think that's that's gonna be the next yeah, the next move for me is to is to really yeah, try that. I, I and I think because I'm not doing this in response to like feeling depressed or stressed or anything. I mean I live a pretty healthy life. I feel good ninety-nine percent of the time. It's like this is almost like adding on top. So it's like, how do I develop that practice of, as you say, like really savouring it and 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 I'm really intrigued by this ability to experience awe, I, I i do experience awe in my life but i i don't train myself to experience it more and more and i can imagine the impact
1: where do you most
0: experience it do you think so i do experience sometimes in, my, in meditation and like i say there's sometimes in nature it seems particularly barn owls like i live in the area <laughs> where we prefer. i don't know if you have barn owls where you live but they're, they're just yeah. they're ghostly white they're silent they're absolutely owls are yeah, amazing beautiful, <laughs> beautiful to experience and they've yeah. got this round face uh so yeah so i i definitely get it when i watch barnhouse hunt um but uh without fail but yeah that so that's so i i and your books help me to kind of recognize that that is what i'm experiencing and having a label for it and yes i mean awe. so uh right yeah, nice think, um Finding that time in nature, uh, yeah, and as I say, med- I think meditation is uh, uh, yeah amazing for me. But one of the points that you make in your book is it's something. What was it like? Ten percent or fifteen percent of people stick with meditation, so it's that's yeah. that's not like available for most. And it wasn't available for me for my entire twenties and most of my thirties. Right. It took me like over a decade of trying to get into meditation and failing right. before I got into it. Uh, but walking in the park is walking in the park. We could do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the more we do it, I think just the better we get at noticing Mm. um, what's around us Uh, and, you know, really kind of enjoying watching the change in the seasons um, or, you know, the change in the light. Um, Even in a city, you know, we can often look up at the sky and see what the clouds are doing, you know, see what the sunset is doing. These aren't these aren't things we we do enough and they're helpful.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, brilliant. um is there anything that uh, you've you've discovered that we've not touched on uh, that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: um I wonder if I have any more t- just user friendly tips. I think we've said a lot of them. Um, you know one thing i I do talk quite a bit about in the book are the benefits of nature sounds, so you know if you find yourself kind of stressed out um and you're indoors even. Uh, you know, just playing some bird song or listening to the sound of rain, you know, it's so easy to, to find soundtracks for these kinds of things now. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a really nice tip. And then I also love, uh, you know, taking snacks or meals outside and, uh, you know, just getting a little more daylight, you know, into your eyes and, and again, kind of looking up at the sky, take, taking, taking some deep breaths out there as we eat or before we eat is really good for digestion. You know, anything we can do to kind of help shift our uh, nervous system is going to be good, good for digestion. So, so, you know, sometimes going outside and sitting someplace quiet, finding a park bench or or a stoop or something like that. Um, And then, you know, I think walking in the morning daylight or going outside in in early morning daylight has been shown to be really helpful for resetting our circadian rhythms so that we sleep better at night. Uh, and, and we also just feel a little more, um, awake, you know, for the tasks we have to do during the day.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, brilliant. Um, yeah, fantastic. Uh, ton of great tips there. Um, something else I came across that I don't know if you've got any experience with, but there's a guy creating forest indoor forest bathing experiences, right? Where they'll bring trees and, and like bark and, and and they're making installations in hotels and, and so on. And uh, I'm really excited for the future there. Like how much of we can bring this wisdom and this knowledge and redesign our office spaces. You know, Cause it's great that, you know, obviously we can get outside and we can explore all those benefits, but how much of this can we also bring inside is really intriguing.
1: To yeah, me. the reality is we do have to spend much of our lives inside, but I also would encourage us to not just replace the outside (laughs) with the inside (laughs) because there are more benefits to actually having that light
0: and feeling the breeze yeah like we'll we'll never we'll never replace it right
1: it'll it'll never replace it that's right
0: okay well awesome so um we'll put links to both the nature fix and heartbreak a personal and scientific journey um in the description uh for the show. Any, anywhere else you would send people been inspired? Um,
1: Yeah. If people want to find out more about my, uh, retreats or talks or things like that, um, uh, my website is just FlorenceWilliams.com.
0: Brilliant. Okay. I'm on
1: Instagram. I'm easy to find.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Florence. This has been amazing. Uh, yeah. Keep up the great work. Uh, yeah. You've certainly inspired me. I'm hoping this will inspire many more. Uh, yes, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Richard.